Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, suicidal ideation, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. April 16, 1779, was a cold and dreary day in London, but 26-year-old James Hackman couldn't stop sweating as he entered the crowded courthouse. He took his seat at the front of the courtroom, trembling uncontrollably. He was so nervous he could hardly concentrate on what the judge was saying. He could only watch as witness after witness took the stand and pointed at him as the killer of Martha Ray, famed mistress of the Earl of Sandwich. Dozens of people saw him shoot Martha point blank at the Covent Garden Theater. It was impossible to claim otherwise. Once the testimonies concluded, James gave his prepared statement. He stood slowly, his eyes welling up with tears as he read from a small scrap of paper. His voice broke. He said, I stand here this day, the most wretched of human beings, and confess myself criminal in a high degree. But despite the emotional delivery, James refused to take full blame for Martha's death. Instead, he told the courtroom he didn't have control over his actions at the time. He claimed that love had driven him insane. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? There's a thin line between love and hate. What manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we took a look at the love triangle between Martha Ray, James Hackman, and John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. We discussed Martha's unlikely involvement with the Earl and James's toxic obsession with her. This week, we'll discuss the aftermath of Martha Ray's murder and the highly publicized trial of James Hackman. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. 
New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On April 7th, 1779, at about 11 p.m., a performance ended at London's Covent Garden Theater. The surrounding streets were soon packed with theatergoers making their way home. Many of the patrons were waiting outside the building for their carriages when 26-year-old James Hackman rushed headlong into the crowd. He searched the mob for 33-year-old Martha Ray, the woman he'd been obsessed with for about half a decade. He eventually spotted her as her acquaintance John McNamara helped Martha into a coach. At the sight of Martha talking to another man, James flew into a jealous rage. He drew his pistol and shot Martha through the side of her skull. She collapsed and slammed into the cobblestone. She died almost instantly. James then drew a second pistol from his coat and attempted to take his own life. Somehow he missed. The bullet only grazed his temple, though the force of the shot pushed him to the ground. He laid there for a moment, confused and humiliated. He was still alive. Onlookers watched as James started to beat himself with his gun, begging to die. Before I delve into James Hackman's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In an article published in the American Journal of Men's Health, Dr. John Olive and his collaborators note that perpetrators of murder-suicides, like James, are often male. The study found that their underpinning motives and actions link to masculinities in an array of diverse ways. The common themes, however, are men's loss of control in their lives, hopelessness, and marginalized masculine identities. James was no exception. He felt hopeless when he killed Martha Ray. For years, he'd nurtured a delusion that Martha loved him back. But after she turned down his most recent marriage proposal, everything came crashing down. His masculine pride was threatened when James saw John McNamara talking to Martha. With no evidence, he assumed John and Martha were having an affair, though they weren't. And unfortunately, Martha paid the price. After James fell to the ground, John McNamara tried to revive Martha. In the chaos, he thought she'd only fainted. But as he put his arms around her, he saw the blood pooling under her head and soaking her silk gown. John was too overwhelmed to move. James Hackman was still on his knees in the street, reeling from his failed suicide, while bystanders around him screamed and panicked. Luckily, the local apothecary was standing nearby and had the sense to snatch the guns away from James. When John recovered from his shock, he yelled for a constable. Soon, the crowd circled Martha and James. Some of the spectators screamed, murder, while others jostled to get a better look at the scene. Gossip rippled through the plaza. The victim was mistress to the Earl of Sandwich. She was a powerful political figure on her own, but even more scandalous 
was the fact that the murderer was a priest. John knew he needed to get Martha away from the nosy onlookers. He picked up her lifeless body and carried it to the nearby Shakespeare's Head Tavern. The pub was full of actors celebrating their Covent Garden performance. When John brought Martha Ray inside, all of a sudden, the room went quiet. Meanwhile, a constable arrived at the theater. After speaking to the apothecary, he escorted James to the same tavern John had just walked into. James didn't try to flee as he was taken into custody, but nearly fainted multiple times on the journey. The wound on his forehead bled profusely. Aware that bringing James so close to Martha's body could be dangerous, the officer walked him to the opposite side of the bar. John McNamara, still shaken, nearly lunged when he saw James. He demanded to know why Martha was shot. James didn't answer. He hardly said a word. It's possible that in that moment, James didn't really know why he'd killed Martha. As we discussed in part one, some experts believe he may have been suffering from erotomania. Dr. Joe Pierre described erotomania as the delusion that an individual firmly but mistakenly believes that someone else is in love with them. When this illusion is threatened, a small percentage of erotomaniacs become violent. Pierre explained that men with erotomania are more likely to engage in harassment. Extreme jealousy might explain why James killed Martha. His rage, however, faded once he shot the gun. After the murder, all he felt was guilt and horror. He didn't make a sound while the constable searched his pockets. The officer found a letter addressed to Martha and a note to James's brother-in-law, Frederick Booth. At that point, James finally spoke up. He begged to see Martha so he could apologize. When the constable told him she was dead, James seemed flabbergasted. He couldn't accept what he'd done. The woman he obsessed over for five years was dead, and it was all his fault. James broke down crying and asked for his brother-in-law, Frederick Booth. Frederick arrived a few minutes later, determined to help his brother-in-law. He was a lawyer, and he knew that the less James said, the better. The constable handed Frederick the paper he'd found in James's pocket. It was the suicide note, written just hours before the shooting. In it, James wrote to Frederick, "'When this reaches you, I shall be no more.'" Then, he explained that losing Martha's love drove him to madness. With James still in hysterics, the constable moved Martha's body to a private room away from the bar. Her body still needed to be examined. He then sent messengers to Martha Ray's next of kin, her longtime lover, John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich. The couriers arrived at the Earl's London home while he was fast asleep. One of his servants tried to deliver the sad news, but the Earl was still too groggy to process the information. When a second messenger arrived with more details, the Earl finally realized what had happened. He bolted to his bedroom, threw himself onto the bed, and sobbed. Through his tears, he supposedly yelled, I could have borne anything, but this unmans me. Later in the evening, the Earl wrote a letter to the owner of the Shakespeare's Head Tavern. 
he requested a servant to watch over Martha's body and for James to be kept in custody. Meanwhile, authorities sent additional messengers to Westminster's chief magistrate, Sir John Fielding. As justice of the peace, it was Fielding's duty to determine what to do with James. Four hours after Martha's death at 3 a.m. on April 8th, Fielding arrived at the tavern. The coroner formed a 24-man committee for an inquest, which was generally held immediately after a crime was committed. It would be used to determine the cause of death and decide the charges for the suspect. The jury consisted of men who lived in the immediate neighborhood, including a violin player who regularly performed at Covent Garden Theater. For the inquest, Fielding ordered the coroner and his surgeons to conduct an autopsy at the tavern. After removing the top of Martha's skull, doctors discovered the force of the bullet had dislodged half of her brain. After the analysis was completed, the jury questioned the surgeons. Several witnesses also testified, including the apothecary who'd recovered the murder weapon from James at the scene. After a couple of hours, the inquest had more than enough evidence to deliver a verdict. As the sun rose that April 8, 1779, the time came for their decision. The jury determined that James had committed willful murder. He was officially arrested and would be held in prison to await trial. Authorities escorted James out of the tavern. As they loaded him into a carriage, he blamed Martha's friend, Katerina Galley, for his actions. He said, had her friends done as I'd wished them to do, this would never have happened. Once he reached the prison, a guard was assigned to his cell to prevent him from attempting suicide. His arms and legs were chained to the walls. It was an uncomfortable setup, but James had endured a long night. He fell asleep within minutes. By the time he woke up, the news of the murder exploded across England. The press soon transformed James from a ruthless killer into a tragic, romantic hero. Coming up, James Hackman faces a highly public murder trial. The worst serial killer. The creepiest cult. The most outrageous con. If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well... Now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On April 7, 1779, James Hackman shot and killed Martha Ray, the mistress of the Earl of Sandwich. The next day, nearly every London newspaper was emblazoned with the word murder. 
the media couldn't resist such a scandalous crime. Not only was 33-year-old Martha an influential political figure, the killer was a priest. In the days after her death, the news concentrated on recreating the scene of the crime. No gory detail was spared. At the time, papers relied heavily on paid informants. Because of that, most articles were likely more sensationalized than accurate. What was already a shocking story was thus further exaggerated. For the press, the truth didn't matter as much as selling papers. And London citizens couldn't get enough of the case. Soon, attention shifted from the crime itself to the killer and his victim. The initial accounts of the murder had been sympathetic to all involved. The papers portrayed the 60-year-old Earl of Sandwich as a former playboy transformed by the love of Martha Ray. After her death, the media reported the Earl was devastated by the loss. Meanwhile, Martha was depicted as a beautiful, talented woman who had accidentally captivated an obsessive young man. Even 26-year-old James was regarded as a victim. The press described him as an intelligent priest driven crazy by love. The newspapers painted James as a star-crossed lover, much like the popular tragic romances of the era. Very few writers held him accountable for his crime. Instead, they treated the murder as a heartbreaking accident, which was remarkably common at the time. In the 18th century, the English media heavily romanticized suicide and crimes of passion. In this case, James was presented not as a vicious murderer, but as a romantic. For example, one poet in the Gazetteer said, "'Twas love, not malice, gave the direful wound." Not everyone in London saw James in that light, however. One feminist said she would cry no tears for a murderer, but instead save them for Martha's grave. Others pointed out that if James truly loved Martha, he wouldn't have shot her, even if she were with another man. While the press speculated, the Earl of Sandwich took action. By April 9th, he had Martha's body removed from the Shakespeare's Head Tavern and brought to an undertaker. He also wrote to a close confidant to ask for advice. His friend immediately came to the Earl's side and convinced him to forgive Martha's killer. He told the Earl that Martha was already dead and that hating James wouldn't bring her back. To distract himself from the murderer, the Earl focused on the crime itself and launched his own inquiry. He tried to interview Martha's friend, Katerina Galley, but she felt too ill to speak. Katerina had been with Martha at the Covent Garden show before the attack. When she saw James shoot Martha in front of her, she fainted. The next day, she still hadn't fully recovered. Instead, the Earl spoke to Katerina's husband, who revealed that his wife had acted as an intermediary between James and Martha. Katerina firmly told James to leave Martha alone, but her husband neglected to mention one important detail. Katerina had also lied to James and told him Martha was seeing another man. She hoped it would convince James to finally leave Martha alone once and for all, not drive him to kill. Now, 
next on the Earl's list was the killer, but he couldn't bring himself to be face-to-face with James. He sent a friend in his place. On April 9, 1779, two days after Martha's death, the Earl's confidant interviewed James in prison. He informed James that Martha wasn't having any affairs at the time of her death. James responded with a smile, saying he knew Martha didn't betray him. He continued to blame the murder on Katerina, who he claimed misled him. James also said he didn't remember raising the pistols, insisting he had been out of his mind when he fired. He claimed he'd never planned to kill Martha and instead wanted to die by suicide in front of her. Later that day, James was transported from the jail to Sir John Fielding's offices for a presentment or a formal interview. An enormous crowd waited in the streets outside the building, hoping to catch a glimpse of the killer before he walked in. All the media coverage turned him into a local celebrity. When he arrived at the office, James stumbled out of the carriage, barely able to walk on his own. He sobbed openly. With his head still bandaged from his suicide attempt, he did his best to look pitiful. James was mourning Martha, but he was also grieving the loss of his freedom. Psychologists Dr. Matthew Wally and Dr. Hardeep Kaur have written, grief often feels like it comes in waves that can initially feel intense and overwhelming. These waves of grief can feel like they come out of nowhere or can be triggered when you are reminded of the person you lost. James was in the full throes of these mood swings. When he sat down in the courtroom's private annex for his interview, he started weeping all over again. Fielding called for quiet, but James couldn't control himself. Several minutes later, he quietly asked for a glass of water to calm his nerves. The cup shook in his hand. James tried to answer Fielding's questions, but his voice cracked every other word. After several minutes, he composed himself enough to continue, but still broke down every time Martha's name was mentioned. James didn't deny his crime, but instead claimed he wished for nothing but death. Though the romantic relationship between James and Martha was one-sided, it was still real for him. His erotomania drove James to both kill Martha and then mourn her. The emotional distress of her death was almost too much for him to bear. After listening to James's passionate plea, Fielding moved him to a different jail to await trial. Despite barely being able to speak during his testimony, James somehow made special requests to Fielding about his prison accommodations. He asked for a private cell and a specific guard. Fielding approved both because James was a priest. Authorities saw him as better behaved than most criminals. When the hearing was over, Fielding remained busy with the case. He received another inquiry related to the murder from the Earl of Sandwich. In a letter, the Earl asked for James to be treated with mercy. He tried to forgive James for the murder because he believed it was a good Christian thing to do. Fielding responded that he'd do his best, but was positive James was guilty. He didn't believe a plea of insanity excused the crime since James's actions were so deliberate. In the meantime, the Earl privately said goodbye to Martha. Five days later, on April 14th, 
he buried her next to her mother in a vault at Elstree Church. She was interred in the fine silk dress and diamond jewelry she wore when she was murdered. At the funeral, her children wept at the loss of their mother. The Earl was inconsolable. Meanwhile, James enjoyed a surprising amount of liberty in prison. He didn't have to wear chains and his friends and family were allowed to visit. At first, James planned to plead guilty at his upcoming trial. But when he realized he'd be put to death, he had a change of heart. Being executed as the result of a guilty plea was similar to dying by suicide, which was considered a moral sin. James's family convinced him to plead not guilty due to temporary insanity instead. Because the murder had many eyewitnesses, it was his only possible defense. A plea of temporary insanity was rare in 18th century England, but not completely unheard of. English law required criminal intent to be proven, meaning that a suspect had to know what they were doing while committing a crime. Insanity was very difficult to prove in court, as the field of psychiatry essentially didn't exist. 18th century doctors had little knowledge of how the brain functioned. Today, we know a lot more about mental illness than we did then. The American Psychological Association wrote, the law governing the insanity defense has coalesced around the existence of a clinical diagnosable mental disease or defect. In modern courtrooms, Insanity is proven medically, usually via expert testimony from psychiatrists. Still, many argue that even today, the law struggles to put reliable parameters around the concept. What constituted temporary insanity in 1779 was even less defined. The general agreement was that the suspect had to be so crazed they couldn't determine right from wrong. This argument would be an uphill battle for James because immediately after the murder, he seemed remorseful. On top of that, his lawyers didn't have much time to prepare his defense. The trial was scheduled for April 16, 1779, less than two weeks after the shooting. That morning, authorities transported James to the courthouse where a large crowd greeted him. The courtroom itself was packed to the brim with spectators. Everyone wanted to see the trial of the infamous James Hackman. Up next, James faces justice. Now, back to the story. On April 16, 1779, 26-year-old James Hackman pleaded not guilty during his trial for the murder of Martha Ray. Everyone had expected him to plead guilty but instead, he claimed he had been overcome by temporary insanity at the time of the shooting. As soon as James entered his plea, the courtroom became unruly. After several minutes of chaos, the judge, Sir William Blackstone, took charge and started the proceedings. The prosecution's goal was to show that James deliberately killed Martha. They called a slew of eyewitnesses to testify. One woman, a Covent Garden fruit vendor explained what she saw leading up to Martha's death. She watched James pull out both of his pistols at the same time and shoot them one after the other. When asked if the killer was in the courtroom, she pointed right to James. 
Among the others brought to the stand were Martha's acquaintance, John McNamara, and the apothecary who confiscated James's weapons. With all those damning testimonies, the prosecution rested its case. They'd provided plenty of evidence. As the defense got ready to make their arguments, the judge permitted James to read a prepared statement to the jury. James stood up slowly and cleared his voice. He quietly read from a piece of paper, reiterating his temporary insanity plea. He claimed that he hadn't intended to harm Martha at all, saying she was dearer to him than life. He only meant to die by suicide and pointed out that he did have a suicide note in his pocket that day. But instead, he killed Martha because he claimed a momentary frenzy overcame me. Conditioned by the press to see James as a tragic romantic hero, his speech moved the crowd to tears. His sorrow and heartbreak in court seemed so genuine that even the judge wept. When he concluded his remarks, James took his seat. Next, the defense attorneys made their arguments, using the press's coverage of James to their advantage. They presumably crafted an emotional narrative of a love-struck young priest driven to madness by Martha Ray's rejection. Lawyers then read James's suicide note to the jury as evidence that he didn't intend to kill Martha that day, only himself. At the end of the trial, Judge Blackstone summarized the evidence for the court. At the time, it was common for judges to push the jury toward a specific decision. In the case of James Hackman, the judge clearly thought the insanity plea was unfounded. He told the jury that not every passionate act came out of madness. For a plea of insanity to be valid, there needed to be a total loss of mind. Blackstone then broke down his reasoning even further. He pointed out that James brought two pistols with him to Covent Garden. He might have been planning to kill Martha all along. His suicide note did seem to indicate otherwise, but it also showed that James was of sound mind that day. The judge instructed the jury that concrete evidence should be the main thing they consider in their decision. In total, the trial lasted less than two hours. The jury deliberated for only a few minutes before reaching a verdict. James Hackman was guilty of murder. He was sentenced to execution by hanging, the usual punishment for homicide. The courtroom erupted in protest at the verdict. Many were in tears as authorities escorted James out of the building and back to prison to await his death. James himself, on the other hand, remained surprisingly composed. He was resigned to this fate. He was surprised, however, to receive a letter from the Earl of Sandwich in his cell. With forgiveness in his heart, the Earl wrote that he was willing to seek a pardon for James, if he wanted one. He was a powerful enough politician that he could have secured an exoneration despite James's obvious guilt. James, however, was resolved to die. His only fear was that his body would be dismembered after his death. In 18th century England, murderers were often dissected after execution as an additional punishment. With the murder rate rising, 
English politicians decided that hanging murderers wasn't enough to deter future crime. Thus, killers received public autopsies, further humiliating them for all to see. James wasn't concerned with his dignity, but he was worried about heaven. Though he committed murder, he was a devout Christian who thought he could still get into the holy afterlife as long as his body remained intact. At the time, Christians believed a corpse needed to be whole in order to gain eternal life. As a priest, James was more worried about his salvation than dying. His mentality isn't uncommon among murderers. Many modern psychologists believe that the threat of capital punishment actually does nothing to prevent homicide. As Dr. Jonathan Groner explains, the psychological mindset of the criminal is such that they are not able to consider consequences at the time of the crime. James Hackman certainly wasn't thinking of his potential punishment when he murdered Martha. He only thought of the deadly consequences after the shooting was over. He stewed in his cell over his upcoming execution, but didn't have long to contemplate his imminent death. His hanging was scheduled to take place just three days after his trial. In the meantime, he was still allowed visitors in jail. Fellow clergymen dropped by to pray for him and his family said their last goodbyes. He also met some unexpected fans. Due to the murder's media coverage, he amassed a crowd of passionate female sympathizers. One woman even wrote to James that she was madly in love with him. But he was no longer interested in romance. He spent most of his time in jail praying, hoping to be saved by God. A priest came by to deliver his last rites on the night before his execution. It was all James could do to get into heaven. That night, he was unable to sleep, tossing and turning in anticipation for his own death. At sunrise on April 19, 1779, 26-year-old James Hackman put on his clerical robe and prayed. He attended one last church service in the prison's chapel. Perhaps his faith soothed him because James was remarkably calm and collected that day for a man who was about to die. He didn't cry or shake like he had during his trial. Speaking to reporters one last time, he confessed his guilt again and said that his punishment was deserved. A few hours later, officers led him out of the prison and onto the street where Londoners turned his death into a big event. Vendors hawked fictionalized pamphlets about James and Martha's relationship to an energetic crowd. The mood was more suited to a carnival. Public executions were considered a twisted kind of entertainment in the 18th century. Everyone, including children, attended hangings. Deaths were witnessed with morbid curiosity. All eyes were on James Hackman as he headed to the gallows in a black carriage. A cart carrying his casket trailed behind as James rode to his death. During the journey, he reflected on the shame he'd brought to his family and friends. Even so, he felt he'd repented for killing Martha enough and that God would understand it was all a mistake. He remained composed, believing the Lord would save him after he died. 
At about 11 a.m., the procession finally reached the gallows. James stepped out into the bright light and authorities led him to the noose. Before the execution, he was allowed to pray for several minutes. He offered a prayer for Martha and her children, along with the Earl of Sandwich. Once he was done, the hangman tied his hands behind his back. The executioner caught sight of his clerical robe and wasn't sure how to proceed. Perhaps he had never killed a priest before. James noticed the man's reluctance and reassured him, saying, My friend, don't be afraid of hurting me. Do your duty. With that, the executioner covered James's head with a hood. When asked for his last words, he said, Dear, dear Miss Ray. A few moments later, he was hanged. His limp body dangled on the public gallows for over an hour. Once his corpse was cut down, it was brought to Surgeon's Hall for his public dissection. James had requested his body remain intact, but in the end, he was treated the same as all other murderers. The next morning, his cadaver was cut open in front of a large mob of people. His body was put on public display for several days. When it was over, James's brother-in-law, Frederick, picked up what was left of the carcass. James had asked to be buried next to Martha Ray, but this request also went ignored. Instead, on April 24, 1779, he was interred at a local church. The day was gray and gloomy, with gusts of wind and rain. It was fitting for what seemed to be the end of such a monumental tragedy. But James Hackman's story found new life in the months following his execution. His friends and allies set to work crafting a novel narrative, portraying him as a naive young man who had been overcome by the corruption and vices of aristocratic society. They argued that Martha led James astray and had purposefully seduced him. His story became a critique of the Earl and more broadly a criticism of politics and nobility. The disastrous American Revolutionary War had made many writers skeptical of politicians, particularly the Earl, who was a leading naval advisor. By that point, the aristocracy was seen as out of touch and sinful in their indulgences. A year later, in 1780, the book Love and Madness, A Story Too True, was published. It claimed to be a volume of James and Martha's correspondence, the letters made James seem like the protagonist of a romance novel. It painted James and Martha's relationship as a torrid love affair. The book was extraordinarily popular in England and was believed to be factual for many years. But the notes weren't actually written by James or Martha. They were forged by a young writer named Herbert Croft. While the public argued over the details of Martha and James, those close to the deceased continued their lives. After the execution, the Earl of Sandwich resumed his political duties. He mourned Martha for many months, but he soon returned to his womanizing ways. Martha's friend, Katerina Galley, was financially destroyed by the murder. The papers blamed her for Martha's death, claiming her lie drove James Hackman to kill. With all the bad press, she was no longer able to support herself as a singer. 
She died destitute. The true extent of Martha Ray and James Hackman's relationship will likely never be known. It has been forever distorted and sensationalized by fiction and exaggeration. The facts portray a very different story from the romanticized account of the 1700s. But much like the judge in James's trial, the best way to look at this tragic tale is through the evidence. James and Martha didn't really have a love story. They were likely friends, but James's possessiveness went too far. Sadly, James's unrequited love not only resulted in Martha's death, but his own. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Hackman and Ray amongst the many sources we used, we found Love and Madness, The Murder of Martha Ray, Mistress of the Fourth Earl of Sandwich by Martin Levy, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Matthew Hartman, with writing assistance by Mallory Cara, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.